News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. America needs a superhero. All right, that was the voice of Donald Trump. What is he announcing, and why did that sound a bit like a Marvel film? Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you so much for being here this morning. Good morning. Good morning. What are we expecting to hear from Donald Trump today? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of questions uh, that can be asked to that question, and number one being, are we actually going to hear from the former president today who has a tendency to put things out on social media and then kind of let it drag for a couple of days, possibly even weeks until he decides to make the announcement? Or are we going to hear something from the president, former president, that has to do with the upcoming election in 2024? And some of the speculation here, Jill, is that he could either potentially decide that he's going to open up a third party race or that there's a possibility here that he may try to convince Republicans in the House to install him as the House Speaker. Obviously, there's a new Congress coming in in January. Nancy Pelosi will no longer be uh, the Speaker because the Democrats lost their majority. And what's interesting about that is in the U.S., you do not have to be a sitting lawmaker in order to be the Speaker of the House. So that is another real possibility that realistically has been something that's been talked about for the last couple of months. Uh, Interesting. So would there be two kind of options then? He could either try to become the Republican candidate for the presidency or go this other route of trying to become the speaker? Well, I mean, look, nothing would stop him from from doing both. He's already announced... Uh, that he intends to to seek the candidacy for the Republican side uh, when it comes to the 2024 uh, election. That was kind of a big splashy event that didn't kind of have the big splash that we've seen in years prior. And in fact, since Donald Trump made his jump into the 2024 race, we've seen uh, his polling numbers sink to their lowest point since July of 2015. There just isn't that kind of um, you know oomph that Donald Trump once had at least on the national stage. But trying to go after the speakership, this could be something that really potentially hinders how Republicans intend to move forward. Look, Kevin McCarthy, a minority leader in the Republican Party right now, is trying to become the speaker, but he is running into resistance from within his own party, who wants to see him delegate some of the powers from the chair down towards the, uh, from the speaker rather, down towards the chairs uh, of the committee. And he doesn't really seem like he wants to do that. So he may risk not having enough votes from the Republican Party to take speakership. What does that mean? It means Republicans could potentially throw Donald Trump's name into the hat to try and rally the troops and get enough votes for that. At the same time, that could lead to some defections and give Democrats the power to install a sitting speaker of the House of Representatives, even though they are not in power. So whatever Donald Trump decides to do today, there potentially could be political ramifications to his own party. And Reggie, you mentioned this, the the fact that you don't have to be uh, an office holder to actually be a House member, to be the speaker. So and you kind of t- t- touched on this or talked about the, the votes and how that would happen. But how would that play out then if, if he was serious about trying to get that role? 
Well, I mean, look, if Republicans did ultimately decide to rally behind him, he does still have a grip over uh, the party. Um, you know, there is a real chance here that he could find himself on the ballot up against Kevin McCarthy and potentially securing enough votes. He would need the majority of the House, which the Republicans currently have right now, to give him uh, to give him that speakership. And I think what's important to remember here is if you are the Speaker of the House, you are third in line to the presidency uh, after the president, the vice president, and then the House Speaker. So, you know, th there's a lot of kind of political upheaval that could take place if Donald Trump happened to get himself in the Speaker position. But at the same time, if Republicans don't line up behind Donald Trump, again, if this is what he ultimately decides that he is going to announce, Democrats have have kind of hinted they may try to go after a more moderate Republican that could get some Republican support uh, and and instate, uh, install that person as the speaker. And there have been you know comments out there that this could be someone like uh, Representative Liz Cheney, who lost her uh, election just uh, just a couple of weeks ago. So there's a real opportunity there for a secondary Republican who maybe isn't as kind of, you know, bombastic as Donald Trump getting the, the getting the uh, the seat here. But Jill, at the end of the day, we don't know what Donald Trump is going to announce. And this could simply just be, you know, he's announcing a, a vice presidential candidate, which could also kind of throw the Republicans into turmoil right now. This is what Donald Trump does best. He gets media attention and then leaves everybody waiting and wanting more. No, that's very, very true. Uh, do any of the investigations or anything happening on the, the side uh, with Donald Trump, uh, with the Donald Trump companies and such, does any of that play a role or, or could that play a role in what's happening here? Oh, for sure. I mean, the former president is backed into a corner right now, uh, coming from a number uh, of directions, whether it is the investigation linked to the uh, improperly stored documents at Mar-a-Lago, the recent um, conviction for the Trump organization when it came to tax fraud in New York, the ongoing uh, investigations that are linked to uh, the Trump family's business operations at the state level in New York. This could simply be a way to try and turn the page because this is the first time in a very long time that Donald Trump has found himself in hot water and unable to get his entire body out of it. Right now, he simply has just been able to get his head out of the hot water by making people shift direction. So this could be a way to try and say, don't look at the sparkly thing over here. Look at the thing I'm trying to do over here. Uh, but at the same same time, Donald Trump entered the race incredibly early. There has been some kind of criticism within the Republican Party saying that he's either going to peak too early, he has already peaked, or he had no business doing it until a little bit down the road. So whatever the decision Donald Trump made a couple of weeks ago, he's still trying to wade the waters to figure out how best to keep treading because we are still two years out from an election where he is already doing worse than people who aren't in the race yet. And uh, Reggie, I wanted to ask you about that. When you talk about his announcement didn't have the splash, uh, certainly that we've seen him be able to get uh, previously, where is the base or his, where are his supporters going? Are they going to, to Ron DeSantis or do we know where they're going at this point? Well, I mean, look, some of the base is still staunchly and firmly behind Donald Trump. We've seen that from members of the Republican Party, uh, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates. They are still lined up behind the former president. Uh, some of the base, though, is starting to move elsewhere. The issue is they don't really have anyone to line up behind yet because it is still so early. Someone like Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida, he does have a real chance here of potentially finding himself on top within the Republican Party, but he is being politically strategic right now in the way uh, that he is kind of navigating the waters towards 2024. Number one, he can't really jump into the race yet because Florida law states that if you are an elected Florida official, you have to resign your position if you're running for federal office. Now, Republicans could scrap that law if he decides to do that, but 
he's got some kind of hurdles that he needs to jump right now. But he does have an ability to draw in a Republican base. He's not quite a Trump light, but he does have the same kind of um, policy ideas that Donald Trump and his Republican Party had. So that's that's somebody that that, you know, where the base could line up behind. But Trump is the only one in right now. And he's still trying to divert the attention back to him to say, don't look at the investigations. Don't look at other Republicans. Remember me. I'm the only one who can do this, even though he's only done it once. All right. Reggie, thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on the show. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday morning. Well, we have been talking about health care, what is happening with health care funding in this country. And joining us now uh, to talk more about this is Adrian Dix, BC's health minister. Minister, thanks so much for making some time for us this morning. Hey, good morning, Jill. Good morning to you. Uh, Just uh, before the news, uh, we played a bit of what the federal health minister was saying about health care spending, saying that there was the potential to reach a deal when uh, Jean-Yves Duclos was in Vancouver. We've also heard from the prime minister in his year-end interview with the Canadian press saying that he's not going to kick health care reform down the road and that uh, there needs to be some movement when it comes to the premiers. How do you respond to that? Well, um, Mr. Duclos did come to Vancouver for the health minister's conference, and he made no proposal. I mean, he didn't make a proposal. Uh, the Premier Horgan, as you know, in uh, much of the last two years of his premiership, led premiers uh, to ask for a national meeting with the federal government on the Canada health transfer, something Mr. Trudeau had specifically agreed to and proposed himself, and they have failed to meet. Uh, and so, really, there's nothing from the federal government. I mean, there's sound bites. And let's acknowledge that Mr. Trudeau is excellent to the soundbites, way better than me. I'll acknowledge that. But in the last, in this last few months, we dramatically reformed primary care in, in consultation, working together with doctors. During the COVID period, dramatically reformed surgery care to actually reduce the size of wait lists during a pandemic. Significantly and massively increased support to long-term care, which are key elements of health care. And the federal government, They've been very helpful to us in working with us on COVID-19 and on vaccination, but otherwise has made no proposal. So with, with what Mr. Duclos says and what Mr. Trudeau says, the federal share will decline next year and then decline the year after and then decline the year after that. And that is, um, since this was supposed to be a 50-50 partnership, really damaging to healthcare. So look, Jill, let me make it real simple. They want to meet at noon on Boxing Day, I'll meet. They want to move on that noon, at midnight at New Year's Eve, I'll meet. The Premier will meet. The Premiers will meet. It's time that they, you know, ended the sound bites, which they're very good at. I understand they want to stay in that safe space and come to a meeting. But what's the point then of meeting if the, the previous meeting that we just saw has both sides coming out saying completely opposite things? Well, but, but, but let's be uh, straight. The previous meeting was not about the Canada health transfer. I mean, we raised those issues. It wasn't on the table because the federal government didn't want it on the table. So, you know, you can't, you know, you can't have it your way, but you can't have it both ways. But there needs to be a national meeting about the future of health care and the Canada health transfer. And uh, the premier has been pretty clear about that for a while. And the federal government is finding new excuses all the time not to meet. You know, we won't meet until you reform something. We don't know what that is, et cetera. Of course, there's a point to meeting. And the point to meeting is to sit down, have a serious discussion and to come to an agreement. And we're prepared to do that at any point. And, and so, you know, but in the meantime, I uh, mean, nobody is, uh, as you know, and everyone listening knows, we've gone through two and a half years of pandemic, which have had a huge impact on every healthcare worker in the province. 
We've gone through six years and more of a public health emergency with the overdose public health emergency that the health system deals in part with, but of course families so profoundly it's it's hard to speak about. And the federal government is really, you know, they're good at it, but playing games. And I'm not playing games. We're working we're working every day on these issues, and uh, we're going to keep doing that. But the the long-term um, viability of healthcare in Canada, which has demonstrated its value during the pandemic. You had a report on your news just now about the value of the immunization campaign, how many lives it saved, how it allowed us to get back to normal. That's healthcare, and we're delivering the largest immunization campaign ever right now. I encourage everyone to go and sign up and get immunized, especially children and and older people right now. And we're doing all these things. The federal government needs to play a part in that. That's been the history of Canada, and that's the history of Canadian federalism. And it's a boring subject. The federal government has most of the spending power, and the provinces have most of the jurisdiction. And that's why we have to sit down and meet and resolve these things. You mentioned wait times, and there was some new information. It was put out by the Fraser Institute. It mirrors pretty closely what we've also heard from Kaihai, uh, taking a look at BC's wait list when, for medical treatment, and it's sitting around 25.8 weeks. Uh, that, that's not an acceptable time. We're also hearing from parents who are waiting for 8, 9, 10 hours at BC Children's Hospital. We're hearing from people who have been given potentially a diagnosis of cancer but are waiting months even for a diagnostic test. Uh, None of that is acceptable in a country as wealthy as Canada, in a province as wealthy as BC. So what kind of reform would you potentially be looking at to fix these problems? Well, Jill, with respect, I mean, the Fraser Institute report um, of, you know, dubious methodology does show BC having the second best record in the country. You know that, you saw the report, so you know that uh, to be true. Uh, but, you know, I don't think these reports mean that much if you're waiting for care. You need care. And that's why on surgeries, for example, uh, when we canceled the surgeries, delayed the surgeries at the beginning of the pandemic, tens of thousands of them, we said that we'd make that up and we'd make that up quickly by increasing the number of surgical nurses and putting in a surgical renewal commitment that has reduced the wait list. It hasn't eliminated the wait list. It's reduced it. In a period of pandemic, which is an extraordinary achievement, not of me, but of our nurses and our doctors and everyone else. So we have a plan in place. It is, of course, challenging when you're dealing with this situation that we deal with right now, with a dramatic increase in visits to emergency rooms. And then you have to respond to that. It doesn't happen all the time. It's happening now. And some exceptional work is being done by the staff of BC Children's, for example, but pediatric units across the province on cancer. We've increased uh, funding the last couple of years and are putting in place a 10-year cancer plan on surgeries, a surgical renewal commitment. You know about the agreement with doctors, which is people in BC have been waiting for for decades, and we managed to deliver on by working at it together. And that's all of those things need the support as well of the federal government. And honestly, they're absent without leave, and they need to join. And look, if it's a matter of credit, because I think federal politicians believe they send money to the provinces, they don't get recognized for that. I'll go out at Kingsway and Joyce, you can come out with a microphone and carry a sign praising the Prime Minister if he comes down and negotiates seriously. 
How about that? Sure, uh, we will absolutely do that. But but you must look at this and realize that but more money is not the only answer to this. We look at other countries that have universal health care and they also have other forms of health care. There's a mix, countries like France, other countries in Europe that have both private health care and universal. They have better outcomes. So are you even willing to look at that as possible reform to the system here? Well, Joe, we have the best outcomes in Canada here in British Columbia. Right. And that's because of some of the initiatives that I've taken. And again, being better than New Brunswick or Ontario isn't the key thing. With respect to those systems in Europe, they have a higher mix of public than private than we do. Right. So they're more public than we are. Some of their issues because they develop differently. We developed a particular form, for example, of care for primary care, working with doctors in the 1960s that was different than in in Britain, where they had an entirely public system, they had, the NH- they had the NHS, which came in directly after World War II. So there are differences between those systems. But I think it's, you know, I would, I would say um, simplistic to look at those European systems, most of which are significantly more public than we are, you know, and say, oh, well, the issue is more private care. We need to provide better care for people and use the strength of the public system as we are at these critical moments because private systems don't respond well uh, to surges in demand and they don't provide fair access to care. We need the people at the front of the list to be the people who need care the most. And that's the most efficient way of doing things. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. And that requires in our Canadian system, more of a response from the federal government, but reform on primary care, reform on surgeries, reform on long-term care, a new cancer plan coming These are the responses. These are substantive actions that need to be taken. And some of them are big and some of them are smaller. For example, the recent thing we are implementing now uh, with 320 people to improve safety and security of nurses and health sciences professionals and healthcare workers and doctors in hospitals. You need tangible action. And that's what we're trying to provide. And I know how difficult it is because we live this. We're living this together. We've been living this together for two and a half years. Never has the healthcare system um, been called upon to do so much. Never has it delivered so much, but never has the need been so great. All right, Minister, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, anytime. Take care, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the polar bear swim is returning in person after its pandemic hiatus. Well, Lisa Pantages is with us now, president of the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim. Lisa, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Exciting to see that the event is returning to its in-person format. What do you anticipate is going to look like this year? I think it's going to look very similar to our last swim that was in person at English Bay, um, The Parks Board really wants to make this a celebration this year that we all get to gather back at the beach. So there's going to be music, there'll be food trucks, um, and hopefully lots of people. We had lots in 2020, so hopefully the community will really show up for it this year in person too. I know people have been doing smaller swims on their own and uh, kind of uh, keeping the tradition going uh, in in a very more subdued type way. Is anything different or going to be different as far as signing up or how the event is going to unfold? Uh, You can sign up online. You can sign up online right now by going to the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim. Um, We will be giving out our traditional buttons, which people really do covet because um, they love collecting them. And you'll often be down at the beach and see people who have, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 buttons. 
Um, and uh, you can also sign up when you arrive if you arrive a little bit early. All right. And I know we've talked a bit about the history of this. Uh, do you know offhand how many times you've done the swim? I, I do. I've, <laughs> I've actually done it every year of my life. Um, this year will be my 61st. Ooh. I just turned 60 this year. So the first time I went, I got dipped in. My toes got dipped in when I was about three months old. <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't remember that. <laughs> but uh, I, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on doing that and, and for every year. And I know there are others that, that make a point of doing it every year. What is it, do you think, that draws people to taking part in it over and over again? You know, when you're down at the beach, there really is this incredible sense of energy and community. People have made their own traditions. And I think, um, you know, in a world where we lack in um, annual traditions, this is one that Vancouver's really proud of. We're, you know, the oldest. We're one of the largest now. Um, always have been one of the largest. And it's just so exciting to see it and see even the generations of families that come down, like it really means a lot to people. And um, that communal energy of everybody just being down there and excited is, is really quite addictive, actually. Yeah, I was. we were talking about it briefly earlier, and I was saying how I think that, that communal energy, or I, I called it kind of being the energy vampire of others, it's some, it makes it easier to go into the icy cold water as uh, compared to, say, doing it on your own. It's really true, and you really do feel like a little kid when you're running in that ocean um, because everybody's hooping and hollering, um, and you do come out feeling quite proud of yourself. So that's another level to it, which um, which you really just see on people's faces. They are shocked and proud and excited, and, and um, you know, what better way to start the new year? Exactly. I know there are, are, are uh, warnings as well on safety when doing this and to, to make sure that everybody has a good time and a safe time. Uh, do you think that it's possible that we could have crowds breaking the record or, or hopes for that day? I, we absolutely. I, I think Vancouver has really missed this um, tradition and I think people are really excited to be together doing it again um, as much as everybody uh, you know kind of upheld the tradition in their own personal way and uh, followed um, the directions that we've been given over the last couple of years during COVID I think everybody's really excited to get back down to the beach. All right what time is it taking place then on New Year's Day? Uh, the events will start at noon um, the swim itself is at 2 30 um, and there will be some special areas set up. We do have warming tents that will be set up. There's also um, a special area for families. So if any families are coming down with younger kids and they want to be in that kind of quieter area, uh, we really highly recommend that. Um, and uh there will be uh, lots of other things going on to keep everybody entertained. All right. Sounds like it will be a very fun day and the return of that swim. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, ICBC saying they are dealing with more and more catalytic converter thefts than ever. In Surrey, RCMP in that city say they see an average of 16 reported catalytic converter thefts every month. Or every month. And that's the statistic from 2021. And this year, that number has nearly doubled to 31%, or sorry, 31 per month. That we heard from Surrey RCMP from the property crime target team saying 
that catalytic converters make up nearly half of the thefts reported from vehicles. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dove Demant, co-owner of Capital Salvage in Vancouver. Dove, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, no problem. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Are you surprised at all by this, uh, those numbers and the fact that we're seeing this big increase in catalytic converter thefts? Um, definitely not surprised. Um, in my yard in Vancouver, I haven't really noticed any increase. Um, it's kind of just been steady, same old. Um, but, um, you know, it's no surprise that when things get colder and, uh, get closer to the holidays, people are needing more money and uh, are desperate for it and will do desperate things to get it. Hmm. So when someone shows up at your yard, say someone shows up and they have a catalytic converter and they want to sell it, what happens in that process, uh, whether it's legit or if you get the sense that maybe this is a stolen piece, a stolen uh, something that this person has stolen from someone's vehicle? Well, it's a very fine line for me to uh, make that assessment. Um, what we do require is that every person trying to sell a cat or any kind of scrap metal is they provide a driver's license or a current BCID. Um, all their personal information is recorded and entered into a system that the police have access to. Um, then they can go into the system and look if there's, you know, match up to maybe a, a, a police report, and then they can take the investigation further. Um, if it's something, you know, completely obvious, if, you know, something's tagged, you know, with like the city of Vancouver or some other kind of identifying marks that's been reported, well, we can do something about it. But otherwise, um, you know, it's, it's very tough to tell who's legit and who's not. Um, the person that brings in the cats is not always the person that might have stolen the cats. Uh, they could have switched hands two, three, four times uh, before it's actually sold. So by law, the person that is selling the cat is taking responsibility for it uh, legally However, they're not necessarily, you know, the thieves themselves. So it kind of leads to a dead end. Hmm. And, and when, so when you say you require identification when someone comes in to sell that to, to you, mm-hmm. uh, but I understand, though, there's no legal requirement for that or that the metals that we're talking about here, they're not even on the list of regulated metals? Well, that was the case. Um, they weren't on the list. But we were, we've always been taking uh, ID for cats, even before it was uh, in law. Now it is uh, in law. It is in writing uh, that they have to be reported. Um, but again, there's some loopholes. There's a wording in law that uh, yeah creates loopholes. And there's ways around it. Um, so our practice hasn't changed even before the laws laws were put in place we've been doing this um and we continue to do it and now that the laws in place um, we haven't noticed anything different it hasn't slowed down the cats coming in um we haven't had any contact with uh, you know the other side with police um so you know it's just a lot of lip service at the moment 
Hmm. You must know, though, you must have scenarios when somebody comes in to sell you one of these things, whether or not this person was the one that ripped it out of a vehicle or bought it or got it from someone who did. You must know when someone's standing in front of you with a stolen catalytic converter. Um, I Not really. Not really. I mean, over the years, we've weeded out uh, what we'll call them trouble customers, um, people that have caused grief by you know, bringing other kind of stolen materials in or causing trouble. Um, so we don't have, you know, it's tough to say, you know, 100%, but we don't, uh, we don't deal with too many uh, of, of thieves. Uh, we try not to. Um, and you can't just tell a thief from looking at him, you know. Right. They come in all shapes and sizes, you know, it could be dressed nice, it could be dressed poorly, you know, um, it's not so simple. And I can get in, you know, I get in a lot of trouble when I try and make, uh, you know, a judgment call like that. It's just, it's not fair. Sure. Yeah. How many times a day or how many of these, how many times would you deal with somebody coming in to sell you a catalytic converter? Um... I would say we probably buy about 20 to 30 a month. Um, a lot of the time, though, um, you know, they'll email beforehand and get a quote and find out how much it's worth and, you know, that sort of a thing. So, um, you know, sometimes somebody will just show up out of the blue with a cat, and if they have their ID, it's good to go. Um, a lot of time, people are emailing in and calling in, asking the price and that kind of a thing. So, I mean, every car out there has a cat. So, right. um, it's not out of the question that all walks of life might bring in a cat. It doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, someone that's working on exhaust systems or, you know, muffler systems. It could be someone that's got a cat lying around in his garage or her garage. Um, you know, there's many scenarios. Um, so it's a very, very sticky situation. How much does someone get? If How much would you pay out for it? Well, there are cats that are literally as low as, you know, $5, $10. Um, but you can go as high as about $1,000 a piece. Uh, a lot of them sit, in, you know, around... Hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollar range, depending on uh, you know what kind of car it's from and how old it is. You mentioned loopholes. Then, is there anything you could see that would change, or changes that might make it less lucrative for thieves, or might to try and curb uh, the amount of theft that we're seeing of these devices? Well, um, at a certain point. It's unfortunate, but people need to start um, protecting um, their their valuables, their their stuff. Um, you know, it's not much different than having an alarm system for your car or putting on a club on your steering wheel. Um, you know, I believe there's already some aftermarket, um, you know, catalytic converter type. Um, you know, uh, something to protect it, uh, you can put on, um, you know, when you go and you buy your insurance, you get discounts if you have different kind of safety measures in your car. Um, uh, maybe this should be something similar to that. 
if you have an anti-cat or anti-cat theft device or something like that, you know, maybe you you save a little insurance. If you don't, maybe you know they get tacked onto your insurance. Um, you know, the, we send all this information to the police, and it's it's a black hole on the other side. You know, there's there's absolutely no uh, back and forth. I don't see anything happening on their side. Um, and you know, then you have to have the courts cooperating and it's just, there's too many levels here and no one is kind of working together. Not to mention you have, you know, the different municipal police forces versus RCMP in different jurisdictions. And, you know, I'm, I'm not privy on how they share information, if they share information, but, um, these are all things that can get in the way. All right. Uh, um, d- all right. Uh, Dove, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I really do appreciate you joining us and talking more about this today. Thank you so much for being here. All right. No problem. You're welcome. All right. That is Dove Demant, co-owner of Capital Salvage in Vancouver. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some exciting news coming out of the UBC Life Sciences Department. Uh, There has been an announcement about an exciting discovery. Researchers there say they have identified a compound that shows early promise when it comes to stopping infections from a wide range of coronaviruses. Well, to find out more about this, we have reached Dr. Tirosh Shapira, postdoctoral fellow at UBC's Faculty of Medicine and the study's first author. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks, Jill, for having me, and thanks for the opportunity to bring this exciting news to the audience. Well, it seems like this could be a bit of a game-changer. What have you actually discovered when it comes to, again, stopping these infections? Well, our team, as you said, discovered an effective antiviral that has a broad spectrum of activity, which means it can work both against all variants that we know of of SARS-CoV-2, but also other coronaviruses. And that's really important because we know that the viruses mutate rapidly and we're looking for solutions that won't just be good now, but those that will be also good in 10 and 20 and 40 years uh, as as the process of developing these compounds is is quite a lengthy one. Is there anything like this uh, that's currently out there or, or that has been discovered or is this completely different? No, this is not a new approach. It's just a very good one. Uh, And when we're looking at uh, antiviral compounds, we don't have to have just one. We actually want to have a cocktail of antivirals that work together and supplement each other. So this is a big part uh, of a a much bigger picture. And so how does this work then, or how would it be put into place if if it does, in fact, stop the infections of a wide range of coronaviruses? How does it actually work? So what's unique to this molecule and the reason why it's a broad spectrum antiviral is that instead of attacking the virus, like many of the antivirals that we currently have, we know that that leads to resistance and variants emerging that are resistant to the antivirals. Uh, What we aim to do is to strengthen the host. We know many humans do not get infected with the virus. They have, we have innate immunities. We have the ability to not get infected and not spread the viruses. So what we set out to do was to look for these uh, systems in the the humans that that can avoid the virus. And because we're targeting them, we're targeting uh, components that are required, not just for one virus, but are required for many viruses and even other pathogens. 
And what would it look like then as far as how would it actually physically be applied to work to give people that protection? Well, this is still an investigatory drug. So there's going to be a lot more research to determine how it's uh, to be given most efficiently, uh, how it is to be tolerated uh, by different populations. My guess is that uh, it will be a pill, but that's very early uh, to say. And when you talk about the effectiveness against a range of coronaviruses rather than targeting those specific, is that kind of one of the more exciting parts of this in that we know now from going through this pandemic and variants and specifically targeting COVID-19, it seems like this is a more efficient way of looking at this. Oh, I sure hope so. And, and the journal and the reviewers that review this thought the same. But uh, yes, uh, the approach is to look for multiple different uh, viruses that we can inhibit. And we thought this approach is so important that we engineered it into the first part of, uh, of our search for good antivirals. So we didn't look for the best compound, the one that inhibits SARS-CoV-2 the most. We looked for the compound that inhibited SARS-CoV-2 the most, but also the common cold virus, which is another coronavirus. Uh, and we're looking now at other viruses that are uh, circulating that might also be using uh, the same mechanisms. So we really put straight uh, up uh, front the broad spectrum activity as our main selection criteria to decide which compounds we want to further investigate. It must have been a pretty special moment when you and the other researchers looked at this or realized what you were dealing with. Yeah, this is always uh, the fun of science. It's uh, A lot of times you get uh, stuff not working and a lot of times you, you have to reshape your hypotheses uh, but it's incredibly rewarding when it does work. And uh, more so than that, there's a lot of small success stories within this paper. So we worked with, uh, in a collaboration with clinicians from the BCCDC and found that this compound is active in, uh, in donor tissues. So it's not just active in the lab. It's also active on, uh, on, on uh, tissues that arrive from real donors. Uh, we also worked with Connexus, a local biotech company, that found the, that helped us find the mechanism of how this compound is working. So each one of these small successes is really uh, helping propel us towards this uh, very satisfying uh, conclusion. And when you talk about how this works as well, as far as stopping these viruses from reproducing, from getting their hold on people, are there any concerns or does it come with any health concerns as well? Absolutely. And we're putting that in our investigational uh, uh, we're looking to find compounds, uh, not just at work, but compounds that don't show uh, any toxicity. So right after we looked for compounds that work against multiple different viruses, the second criteria we had is that they have very low toxicity that we're seeing in the cells that we treated. Uh, this is uh, going to be much more of a concern moving forward as uh, us and the industry develop this compound further. And what the FDA regulators really want to know is how uh, how safe this compound is. And that's what we'll be working on next. Because we do have other antivirals, but is this very different from those? Yes, because it's targeting the host, then by design, it might incur more uh, side effects. So mm. we want to, we know that, we acknowledge that it's the price, the price we pay for having a compound that is more resistant to, to uh, variants emerging and more broad uh, active. But at the same time, because we know of this, 
Uh, we're putting a lot of effort into ensuring that we're not picking any compound that will be uh, toxic or have a severe side effects when given to patients. Right. Okay. Uh, you uh, mentioned this as well, that it was a, a big team working on this. I know you've worked in collaboration with other uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, I think there was one in Japan. How big of a, a study or how big of a project is this? Uh, it's quite big uh, and everybody is contributing their parts. So uh, at the end, each uh, researcher is doing a significant amount of work and, and the sum of the work uh, is comprised of all of its components. Uh, this work has been published uh, already at the beginning of the year uh, in uh, online because that's part of the, uh, our attempt to get this knowledge out as quickly as possible. Uh, so uh, it's not just our team that uh, used these findings. Our teams as well were knowledgeable about our findings and, uh, and, and published papers with, uh, with having this knowledge uh, on hand. So that's really something good that came out of the pandemic, as much as we can say something good happened because of the pandemic, uh, is that the research, uh, the researchers like myself and others uh, started to put our findings online much earlier so that everybody can have access to them uh, before it gets published uh, in an official journal like, uh, like ours did just, uh, just this week. And again, looking to the future and uh, still, I would imagine, more years and more approvals, but this does seem to be pretty optimistic. Yeah, we're always cautiously optimistic. We're scientists. We're uh, always uh, trying to see the faults in everything, especially in our own work. Uh, not all drugs that uh, come out of the academia uh, become uh, blockbuster drugs. Uh, there's many stages in the process that can eliminate drugs if they're not safe, for example. And, and these are important and good processes to have. Uh, so we're, our job is to bring forward the, one, the compound that we have the most confidence about. Uh, and as I said, because we saw that it has good activity in donor tissues already, uh, because we know the mechanism, because we uh, verify that it has low toxicity, we have a very high confidence in this compound's ability uh, uh, to be a good candidate for treatment. Well, it uh, is very interesting for sure, and we'll be looking to see what happens next with this. Uh, Tirosh Shapira, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this discovery. Absolutely. Thanks, Jill, for having me.